It's good to see all those that are out uh, this afternoon. I want to thank everybody who's stayed with us, or those of us who, those of you who are here uh, this afternoon for the first time. We really appreciate your presence here, and hope that you'll be edified by our services this afternoon. As we close the gospel meeting, I, I just have to say again what I've been saying all week, but for the final time, thank you. Um, I just can't say enough about how what a blessing this has been to me to be able to spend some time with y'all and get to know all of you better, to be able to have some really terrific fellowship. Y'all have a terrific congregation, uh, just a, a lot of love that is quite evident amongst everybody here, very strong. It's very encouraging to come to a congregation that it just so evidently cares about each other, and I just think that's wonderful, and Christy and I have been very blessed, and as I said this morning, if you've got a tenth of what I've gotten this week, then, then you've, been, you've been blessed because I've gotten a lot out of this week and we really appreciate it. We'll keep you guys in our thoughts and prayers and ask that you keep us in your thoughts and prayers as we leave and, and we both go about our respective walks in Christ. So really appreciate it. I just wanted to say one more time, thank you. This afternoon, we're gonna talk about something that I think is important. We kind of touched a little bit or began a little bit of thought about this this morning, but I wanna talk this, this afternoon about the prayer of the persecuted. You know, there's a story in the New Testament that I think is just really fantastic because we get to see how a, a first century church responded to persecution at that time and, and what they did. And I think we can learn a lot from studying this story and, and paying attention. But before we get to the story, you know, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and in verse number 10, the Bible there says, but thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of law, life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Now listen, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You know, that's a reality of being a Christian. You know, if we are going to be a Christian, if we live a life like Christ wants us to live, then some form of persecution is part of the job description of a Christian. You know, and, and one of the things that I think we can say is if we lived our life and you look back at your life and go, you know, I never felt uncomfortable. I never felt like I was persecuted in any way. Well, then maybe we all think about the life we're living. Because in this world, the way this world is and the way this world works, if you and I have lived a Christian life and never felt uncomfortable and never felt like things were a little difficult, we may want to readjust what we think a good Christian life is because a Christian in a world that's run by Satan will suffer persecution, and that's what this scripture teaches us. You know, it's a reality. Spiritual adversity is a reality, but you know, sometimes we can be overly sensitive. Before we talk about persecution, I want to talk about things that are not persecution. You know, sometimes we get riled up about stuff. So, you know, our favorite candidate loses an election, and we go, Christian persecution, because he was going to, or she was going to be somebody who's going to be really moral. Well, you know, that, that's not Christian persecution. That's losing an election. There's lots of reasons people lose elections. It may not be Christian persecution. You may have a doctrinal disagreement with somebody. Well, you know, a doctrinal disagreement doesn't really fall under the heading of persecutions or even the rejection of the gospel by others. That's, that's not really persecution. That's just God's word, not finding good soil to fall upon and somebody not responding to it like we talked about this morning. Those things are not persecution. You know, persecution for early Christians meant something different. And we talked a little bit about this. When we begin to think about how much spiritual adversity we're undergoing, you know, we should be thankful that we're not in the first century because Christian persecution there was a whole different animal. 
Nobody's ever tried to physically attack me for being a Christian. Maybe you've had that. Maybe some of the people who've been overseas and, and done some of the work overseas, maybe they've been in situations where maybe there were some things that were physically dicey a little bit in terms of preaching the gospel. But as a general rule, especially here in the United States, we generally don't get physically attacked because we're Christians. It's happened, I suppose, but it's just a very rare occurrence. You know, back then they were. Not only were they physically attacked, they were imprisoned. I've, I've never been threatened with imprisonment for being a Christian. Now, there are people who are threatened for imprisonment because maybe they are, you know, under the guise of Christianity, breaking rules and getting thrown in jail. But you know what? That's breaking rules and getting thrown in jail. I, I just, there's not too many people. We haven't passed a law that says if somebody's a Christian, they go to jail. Now, some of you may think we're getting close to it, but that hasn't happened. Back then, it did mean imprisonment, and it meant even death, and we can read about all kinds of deaths. You know, often we know about Stephen and, and, the, and the apostles, who many of them who met a very terrible death. Of course, Christ was persecuted, and so those were very real persecutions. You know, in the world today, we really don't suffer a lot like that. We don't, we're not physically attacked. We're not imprisoned. We're not, even, we're not put to death. We just don't suffer those kind of things. So typically, typically, those things don't happen today, but persecution still exists. Some persecution remains very serious and dangerous in parts of the world. Like I said, there are, outside of the United States, we're blessed to live in a country which is a rule of law nation. And so because of that, a lot of times we don't have to worry about some of these things. But, you know, you go into places like Nigeria and India and other places and, you know, things can become a lot different. And so maybe people have faced a lot more different persecution over there. But, you know, there's persecution of other things. And, and, and you know, this is persecution. It's just a lesser order, maybe in the way of dealing with it. But, you know, and this is kind of the thing we run into today. If we're Christians, maybe we're the, you know, we get abused a little bit for being Christians. People make fun of us. Maybe people joke about us. Maybe people tell their friends, hey, this, he or she is backwards because they're a Christian. Maybe we don't get invited to social events. Maybe we don't have as many friends because the friends that we could be friends with run around and do things we don't agree with and we don't want to put ourselves in that situation. Maybe we face sometimes punitive actions, either at the workplace or in society because of some of the things that we do. You know, whenever I was a lawyer at, the, well, I'm still a lawyer, but whenever I was a lawyer at the law firm, which is different than being a lawyer at a company, you know, at the law firm, there were a lot of things that, you know, whenever we were working for a client, you know, you worked, you know, sometimes till late at night. And, you know, I'm not saying it's great or anything, but I was thankfully able to tell everybody just First thing off, look, I'm not going to be here on Wednesday nights, no matter what's going on, because I've got church. And I'm not going to be here on Sundays, because I've got church. I can maybe come in between services for a little bit, but I've got to be at church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And I just kind of set that up as the rule. But you know what? There were times when cases came, and they were really neat cases, and I wanted to work on them. And they said, nope, Brent doesn't get to work on them, because Brent's not going to be here on Wednesday night. And we need somebody to be here the whole time. So I missed out on some stuff. I mean, I guess that's a form of persecution. It's just not the same thing that the first century church went. But I don't want to belittle the difficulties that we find in this world today because they still hurt. It's not fun to be made fun of. That hurts. It's not fun to lose out in society and have people think you're backwards because you're a Christian. That's not, that's not a fun thing. And so we do face spiritual adversity today. I just think we have to be real with it and understand that our spiritual adversity today, while it is adversity, is not, thankfully, the same kind of adversity that the first century church felt but we still need to know how to respond to that adversity and to put it in its proper context. So I want to read about a story that occurs in Acts chapter 3 and in chapter 4. You'll be glad to know we're not going to read both chapters. I know I've been reading some lengthy readings. We'll have a few this afternoon, but we're not going to read Acts 3 and 4. We'll read part of it later on. 
But I want to begin by telling you the story of what was happening in Acts chapter 3 and 4 so that we can get into the meat of our study. Peter and John are going into the temple, and when they go into the temple, they see a man. And this man, is the Bible says, was lame from his mother's womb as they enter the temple. The reason that's important is because this wasn't a guy that was faking it. This wasn't somebody who was, you know, pretending to be lame because he could, so he could maybe get some money or some kind of gift. He had been lame from his mother's womb, and so there was no doubting that this fellow was disabled and he was lame as, the, as Peter and John are walking into the temple. And the Bible says, there's, you know, we're leaving some of the details out, but the point is Peter goes to this man and he heals the man and causes him to be able to walk again. And the fellow runs into the temple praising and thanking God because of his healing that he's now able to walk. When that happens, understanding that a miracle has been performed, everybody that's in the temple pours out into the porch to come see Peter and John because they're very excited that these men have now performed this miracle because they knew a miracle had been performed. He had been lame from the very moment that he had come out of his mother's womb, and they knew that if he's walking now, something evidently miraculous had occurred. And so when they do that, Peter delivers a sermon in Solomon's porch proclaiming that this miracle wasn't Peter, that it wasn't by his power, but that it was through Christ that he was able to heal this person. And so therefore, using this miracle as kind of the launching point for his sermon, he urges them to repent and to turn to Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, saying, using this miracle as proof of the power and the supremacy of Christ. And he delivers this powerful sermon on the porch of the temple. This did not sit well with those running the temple. The priest and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees hear this sermon and they thrust Peter and John into prison because they're out there disturbing things and worse, preaching something that was completely opposite of what the temple wanted people to believe, which is that the Messiah had not yet come. And so Peter and John are actually put into prison for preaching a sermon. Now again, none of us, I don't believe, I'm looking around, I don't think anybody here I'm aware of has ever been put in prison for preaching a sermon. Maybe I'm missing something. If you have been, I'm sorry. But as a general rule, that doesn't happen. But it happened here. Peter and John simply preached the gospel and they were thrown into prison or into, into, into imprisonment by the rulers of the, of the temple at that time. Now despite this, about 5,000 people were converted, the Bible says, as a result of what Peter and John did there at the temple. So Peter and John, by sticking it out and, doing the, and performing the sermon and, and giving the sermon anyway, were able to, through the power of God and the word of God, convert 5,000 people. Then after that, a trial is held. This is where the lawyers get involved. The lawyers always mess things up. So there's a trial that happens here after they're put into prison. And during this trial, Peter doubles down and again states that the miracle was by Christ, that Christ had been wrongly crucified and that salvation is only through him, which did not sit well again with the Sadducees and the rulers of the temple. They did not like that. Now, I wanna pick up the story now in Acts chapter four. We're gonna be reading in verse number 13. Acts chapter four and in verse number 13. The Bible says this. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them, that they had been with Jesus and beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could not say anything or could they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves saying, what shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name or in his name. Now, so these guys get together and they go, well, 
we have a problem. The problem is, is that there's a miracle that's been done and we can't deny it. We can't. I mean, for example, if I walked into the back of the church this afternoon and I had the, the flowing locks of hair like we talked about with Absalom, if I walked in and I came in with flowing locks of hair in about five minutes, we would all know that a miracle has been performed because there's no way I should have hair. It's not possible, right? And so if somebody was out there performing miracles, giving bald guys hair, then, and I walked in with hair, you'd know a miracle had been performed. That's small compared to somebody who's been lame from the birth and this guy's walking. So they go, we can't deny it. It's manifested that a miracle's been done. What are we gonna do about this? You would think they would say, maybe we ought to pay attention to Christ. Nope, they were too eaten up. Instead, what they did is they said, well, we gotta stop this. We gotta nip this in the bud. So what we'll do is we will threaten Peter and John. And we'll tell them, don't ever do that again or you're gonna go back into prison or maybe even worse, stop preaching the gospel. That's what they said. Now, the Bible says going on, and they called them and commanded them not to speak nor teach in the name of Jesus. They just flat out told them, you're not allowed to preach the gospel. And I love Peter and John's response. Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Peter and John, remember, they've just gotten out of prison. I mean, they, you know, they barely walked out of the prison and don't have the shackles on anymore. And they've been told not to preach the gospel. And you would think Peter and John would say, you know, we'll think about it. You know, thanks for the hospitality in prison. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. No, instead what Peter and John do is they're sitting right there on the lip of the prison. They say, well, you know, look, whatever you think you need to do, go ahead. But we're going to violate this again and again and again. We're going to preach the gospel. They were pretty bold. And it says, so when they had further threatened them, they let them go. They threatened them again after that saying, and they let them go finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. The people that had believed these 5,000 that were converted were just a physical impediment to them doing anything to them right now. Because of the people, for all men glorified God for that which was done. For the man was above 40 years old on whom the miracle of healing was showed. He'd been lame 40 years, which is why they could not deny that a miracle had been performed. And being let go, and this is where our lesson starts. And being let go, they went and they began to devise a plan how they could secretly preach the gospel without the Pharisees. That's not what the Bible says. When being let go, they went and they decided how they could preach the Bible in code so that no, that's not what it says. What it says is being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. Now, I wanna just stop and understand right here that what they have done is their immediate response to persecution is not to go listen to Oprah Winfrey about a self-help book or something like that, or, or go look in the mirror and do something about, you know, kind of, you know, self-confidence or anything like that, or go see a human counselor or come to a human lawyer and ask if that was legal. Instead, the first reaction they did is, let's go back to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's go talk to them about this. First thing they did. It says immediately they went. Now, and this is, and when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. This is the church now. And said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage? And the people imagined vain things. The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ for a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. 
by stretching forth thy hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. I love that story. And I want to spend a little bit of time talking to you about it this, this afternoon as we close our meeting. You know, the first thing I want to notice is the strength that we have in Christian fellowship. I love that the first thing they did was go to their brothers and sisters in Christ. I just love that. It says that in first 20, uh, Acts 4 and 23, they immediately went to their fellow Christians. You know, the right fellowship can be very valuable. In Proverbs chapter 27 and verse number 17, Proverbs chapter 27 and verse number 17, the writer says this, iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. You know, there's something about companionship that sharpens each other whenever we're together. You know, if, if things happen that are bad to us and we have to bear it alone, that's difficult. But when we can confide in somebody and share what it was like and share how we were scared about it and they give us comfort, that really is important. It's one of the reasons I've been so blessed to be here this week. There's just something about being around fellow Christians that is encouraging and that is strengthening and that is enriching. And thanks be to God that he gave us the blessing of fellowship one with another, that we could be strengthened like this. Iron sharpens iron. In Ecclesiastes chapter four and in verse number nine, Ecclesiastes chapter four and in verse number nine. Get over there. The writer there says this, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. You know, there, there's something about companionship and about being able to be picked up. Um, it's not the right example, but I'll tell it to you anyway. Um, so I know this is going to get me run out of here, but just good as the last sermon, but I'm a huge Texas Longhorn fan. So all of you that are tech fans, you can go and shoot at me now, but I'm a huge Texas Longhorn fan. And I'm also a very pessimistic Texas Longhorn fan. I always believe that the Longhorns are going to lose, whatever it is. My brother, Brandon is a very optimistic Texas Longhorn fan. It doesn't matter what's happening. Brandon believes they can win. I love to watch games with Brandon because I get down and Brandon picks me up and says, no, no, they can win. They can win. Unfortunately, over the last several years, I've been right more than Brandon's been right, but it's still fun to watch a game with somebody who encourages you, right? Because otherwise, if I'm just watching it by myself, I'm spiraling into this you know, darkness of we're never gonna win, right? Well, the same thing in, in, in a much more serious way with Christianity. You know, you may have a difficulty. If you have to bear that by yourself, you can never share it with anybody. That can be a very dark place. But when you can confide in a fellow Christian, your family and other people in Christ, boy, what a blessing that is and the ability to be able to get strength from that. In Romans chapter one and in verse number nine, Romans chapter one and in verse number nine, the apostle Paul there writing to the Romans says this, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Make a request if by any means not length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that you may be established. That is that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. You know, Paul was giving thanks to these people and he says, you know what's so great about this? The reason I'm so blessed is because we have mutual faith. That's what we have here today. We have mutual faith. We believe in the risen Christ. 
and we believe in what his Bible says and we believe in all the commandments and we are trying to follow them. And we're all together failing and getting back up and trying and failing and together and getting back up and trying. And we all understand what that's like and we can pick each other up. And if we had to do that by ourselves, it would be lonely. But God do that and he gave us fellowship. And we need to take advantage of it, just like Peter and John. Peter and John are apostles. You may say, boy, well, that's great, but I'm a pretty strong Christian. And so I can kind of, really? Peter and John were apostles. You know what they did when they got persecuted? First thing they said is, we need to go to church and tell everybody what happened. We need Christian fellowship. No matter who we are, even if we're an apostle, we need that kind of fellowship. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. We read these verses all the time to tell people that it's important to go to church, but listen to the context here. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 23, it says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, we use that verse to say, hey, we got to not forsake the assembling of the church. That's true, but why? The why is because we exhort and build each other up by being here in addition to worshiping God. You know, if we had a meeting today and it was just me and Jeffrey and all of you decided not to come, I mean, I'd have a lot of fun preaching to Jeffrey, but it wouldn't be nearly as encouraging as it is right now because there's a whole lot of us here. And there's something about being together that really makes it a lot better. And so that's why, and there's something that's uplifting about it. You know, if it was just Jeffrey and Colton, and Colton was, was having a particularly bad week, and he came to the, the last sermon of the gospel meeting, and it's me preaching to Jeffrey and Colton, there's nobody else here, how encouraged is Colton going to be? I'm sure Jeffrey's a great example and everything. He's known Jeffrey all his life, but... Probably not as encouraging as coming to, you know, a place where the, the auditorium's as full as this and we're all sitting around listening to a sermon. That's much more encouraging. So, so Christian fellowship is very valuable. But, you know, the wrong fellowship can be very damaging. Not just any fellowship will do. We need to have the right fellowship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 33, again, a verse that we read a lot of times, simply says, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. You and I can have the wrong kind of fellowship and it could be a problem. I didn't tell you this about the story of Absalom. We talked about Absalom earlier, and we talked about how Amnon did uh, a very terrible thing with Tamar. And the Bible, another sermon that I like to preach, and I think it's really great, uh, not a great story, but a great point, is, um, and it's the Bible makes it, not me, uh, but it says there that, that whenever Amnon was wanting to do what he was gonna do to Tamar, he said, I, this is impossible, I can't do this. And then the very next phrase says, but Amnon had a friend. And then Amnon's friend told him how he could go about lying with Tamar, and he did exactly what his friend did. You know what happened? Evil communications corrupted good manners. The wrong kind of fellowship can be devastating. And so we need to be careful about what fellowship we have, but there is strength in Christian fellowship. How do we respond to adversity whenever we have it in our lives? What do you do? You know, do you run to church or this congregation or fellow Christians and tell them what has happened? I hope so. That's what Peter and John did here. But too many times we do other things. Things are going bad. We don't talk to people in the church. Those are church people. They're perfect. We're not supposed to talk to them. That's not true. Nobody here is perfect. But sometimes we think that way. And so instead of going to anybody to the church, we'll go bear our soul to friends outside of the church or a worldly counselor, or we'll go you know, put our nose in a self-help book, or we'll go talk to, we'll listen to celebrities. 
help us if we do, but sometimes we listen to celebrities for advice, or sometimes we'll listen to politicians or trust politicians to fix our problems. And listen, I'm not saying that there's anything sinful about reading a self-help book or sinful about doing some of these things. What I'm telling you is, if that's your first reaction, you need to adjust. Because the first reaction we should have is to get with our fellow Christians when we have spiritual adversity. Iron sharpens iron. And that means that people of like things sharpen each other. If you go to a worldly counselor, you know, if I take iron and I, and I, and I try and sharpen it with chalk, that doesn't work very well. Why? Because those are two different materials completely. And that's the same thing that's gonna happen if you and I go outside of the body of Christ. We're gonna be somewhere and we're gonna be trying to sharpen, but there's nothing to sharpen us with because it's just something different. If you and I wanna be sharpened, we need to go with somebody that, that follows the same kind of the mutual faith that Paul talked about. In the 119th Psalm, and in the 63rd verse, the 119th Psalm, and in the 63rd verse, the Bible there says this, I am a companion of all them that fear thee and them that keep thy precepts. Make that your habit. Now, I'm not telling you and I can't have friends outside the church. We better. Paul says, and the, and the book says that we need to be out in the world trying to preach people the gospel. We'll never convert anybody if we don't make relationships outside of the body of Christ. But if you find that your list of friends is consumed by people outside of the body of Christ and you really don't have any close relationships here or where you worship, that ought to be a warning sign. We're, our, our Rolodex of friends ought to be filled with people that we attend church with. And we can have others too, but we need to make friends of the Lord's brethren. And we need to be able to say that we have companionship and we follow after those people. Now, the other thing I can learn, that I think we can learn about this is that when we are persecuted and we make this mistake all the time, it is not about you. We make that mistake, I don't know, maybe you don't, but I do, all the time. Oh, they don't like me or oh, I did a bad job explaining whatever it is that I'm explaining, or oh, look what's gonna happen in my life. Folks, whenever we're persecuted, it has, let me tell you how much it has to do with you. Zip, zip. If you preach the gospel, the reason they're rejecting that gospel is not because they hate you. It has to do with the fact that they were rejecting Christ. We live in a very self-centered world. And so we tend to personalize things quite a bit and we make it about us when it's really not. Christy tells me that all the time. If I could have, a, if I had a nickel for every time that Christy said, hey, it's not always about you, which ought to tell you something about some of my foibles. Whenever Christy has to tell me all the time, hey, it's not about you. And that usually has to do with where we're going to dinner and me getting upset because we're not going to dinner at the right place. That's another one of my foibles. But anyway, Christy always accuses me of being a little selfish, okay? And that's because that's the way we tend to be sometimes. And so this self-centeredness tends to make us interpret spiritual adversity as an affront to us, but that's not true. In 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse number 1, there's a very uh, you know, important story that we are familiar with. It's the story of whenever Israel wanted a king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse number 1, it says, And it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn son was Joel, the name of his second Abiah, and, the th and, there were, and they were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways. But turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said to him, Behold, thou art old and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. 
Now therefore hearken unto their voice, howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. I think it's interesting. I've always thought it, I thought it was curious that God here tells Samuel, look, it's not about you. They're not rejecting you. They're not rejecting me. Let me tell you something. If there was ever a time when it was about somebody and not God, it might've been this. I mean, Samuel had sons that were doing terrible things. I mean, these were not good guys. They were taking bribes. They were perverting judgment. And the Bible says that because of all that, the people said, look, we want a king. And even then God said, it's not about you. It's about me. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And so whenever people have difficulty or when we have difficulty with people talking to them about Christ and we get depressed about a rejection or depressed because they don't want to hear about it, look, it's not about the messenger. It's about the message. And we need to understand that. Listen to Acts chapter four and verse 24 in the, verse, in the verses that we read. Listen to what they prayed. When they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against Peter and John. That's not what they said. Against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel will gather together for to do whatsoever of thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. You see, the message of Christ, Christ himself was rejected by the people. They understood where the real affront landed. Have you ever been more animated defending something whenever somebody else was being attacked? I remember... When I was growing up, there was a kid. He was a bully in the neighborhood. Brad and I, Brad's my number, he's the number two kid, so he's right below me. He's the number two son. Brad and I have uh, always had kind of a love-hate relationship. I'm kidding. Most of you know Brad. Brad's a good guy, but, but we did fight a little bit when we were growing up. Uh, Jeff knows that. Jeff grew up in the middle of some of those fights. But you know what? There was one day we were outside, we were playing baseball in front of the house. And there was this bully in the neighborhood. And this bully in the neighborhood came by with his bike. I remember it was a Houston Oilers bike. That tells you how long ago it was. Houston Oilers don't even exist anymore. But this kid had a Houston Oilers bike and he tried to run over my brother. Boy, that got all over me. I was really offended by that. And I got really on to the kid because I didn't like the fact that somebody was trying to run over my brother. Now, mind you, this is a brother that probably the day before and the day after I fought with. But on that particular day, I didn't like that because somebody was picking on my brother. Folks, whenever we have spiritual adversity, it's not about you. And it's not about your brother. It's not even about your spouse or your kids. It's about your savior. Whenever people are rejecting the message of Christ, don't make it about you. It's about Christ. It's Christ they're offending. It's Christ they're rejecting. You know, when we feel that way and when we see that way, maybe it'll motivate us a little bit to take it in a different light and be a little more defensive and have a little bit more backbone when it comes to some of the spiritual adversity that we find in our lives. You know, Peter and John understood the adversity was not focused on them. It was focused on Christ. That's why they said, look, we've got to obey Christ. In Matthew chapter five and in verse number 11, Matthew chapter five and in verse number 11, the Bible there says this, blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. 
Jesus says, look, you're going to be persecuted. And when you are blessed, when you withstand that, and you're being persecuted, not because they don't like you or because they think there's something wrong with your personality. They don't like the fact that it's Christ. When people think that you're weird, it's not because you're the person they're upset about. It's what you're doing. And what you're doing is following God. They're making fun of you because you don't do the same things the world does. And so they're not making fun of you. They're making fun of God's law. Whenever you think it's wrong to to run around and have different kinds of relationships before you're married and they call you a fuddy-duddy or they call you a stick in the mud or they call you behind the times, they're not mad at you. What they're mad about is the word of God. Whenever you refuse to participate in some of the parties and other things that are not wholesome and not right and places where Christians shouldn't be and they call you weird or a nerd or whatever, they're not mad at you. What they're mad about is the word of God. And we need to understand that and not make it personal about us. In John chapter seven and verse number seven, John chapter seven and in verse number seven, there Jesus says, the world cannot hate you. That's interesting. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. The world hates Christ. Satan hates Christ. Satan doesn't hate you. Satan would love to have you in hell. He extends an open invitation to you. He wants to spend eternity with you. It's not about you personally. It's his enmity with God that is really the issue. He doesn't want you to go to God. And so this is about Christ. It's not about us. In John chapter 15 and verse number 18. John chapter 15 and in verse number 18. The Bible there says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, thy servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which were none other, which none other man did, they had not had sin, but now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me, and ye shall also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning." Here he says, they are, the reason they don't like you is because you're not of the world. The world is rejecting what's not in it. Folks, if you're not being rejected, if you're not being, feeling adversity in this life, I'm gonna suggest a hard truth to you. You might be of the world because the world will reject something that's not of it. But if you find this world just easygoing, life's always great, you never have any difficulties, your lifestyle matches what everybody else does, and you never have any disagreement with anybody about any kind of issues, you need to step back, take a breath, and think about whether your life is a little too worldly or not. Because the truth of the matter is, if we're following after Christ like we should, the world will end up rejecting us in some aspects, and we need to understand that. You know, getting this wrong causes us to feel sorry for ourselves. When we make it about ourselves, then we, you know, we kind of look down and we shuffle our feet and we hem and haw and we go, we get depressed. You know what doesn't happen? Action. We don't do anything. We're depressed. We begin to get discouraged. We begin to get upset. But you know, when we make it about Christ and we realize it's about Christ, then you're like me with my brother. Then all of a sudden you're spurred into action. You go, wait a minute, they're after Christ? 
You mean they're after the Christ who died for me on the cross of Calvary? They're after the man who was perfect? They're after the man who stood on the cross and said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he did that so he could pay my sin debt? The one who gave me the opportunity to live forever with heaven, in heaven with the Father? They're making fun of him? Maybe we're motivated a little bit more. And so getting this right will motivate us and cause us to do more for Christ, hopefully. The last thing I want to talk about is boldness, not safety. You know, whenever they, they so the first thing they did is they went to the church. The second thing they did is they understood it wasn't about them, it was about Christ. But then I love what they prayed. You remember what they prayed? They didn't say, oh Lord, you know, we understand that your holy father is under, that holy child is under attack. And so therefore, Lord, we pray for safety or protect us or please cause these people to go. That's not what they said. Do you know what they said? Remember what they said? They said, give us boldness. Help us to preach. Help us to keep doing miracles. Help us to keep going forward. That's their prayer. Now, what would our prayer have been like? Let me tell you what, if, if you'd have come in the back of the church and you'd have prayed and they'd have said, Brother Brent, will you get up and give a prayer? You know what my prayer probably would have been like to my shame? Lord, please be with these people. Please protect them. Please comfort them. And I'm not trying to make fun of this, but that's probably, it would have been a lot of that. We don't think in the terms these people are thinking. We need to pray for protection and safety. I'm not making fun of that. But you know what we also need to pray for? Boldness. We need to pray, not that we come out of persecution, but that we were able to withstand it and that we'll react appropriately to it. Too many times we want to avoid it and say, oh, Lord, please deliver us from this persecution rather than looking at it as saying, Lord, we can really make an impact. We can be a great example if we will continue to do this persecution. Peter and John knew it. The reason they knew it is because they sat there on the porch of the temple and despite the fact they were going to be thrown in jail, they preached a gospel sermon and 5,000 people were converted that day because of what they said. They understood what it meant to withstand persecution and the benefit of withstanding persecution. And so we need to think about how that, Peter and John were focused on Christ, not on their difficulties. Over in Acts chapter four, where we were reading, just to give you some example of this, over in Acts chapter four and in verse number 19, Acts 4, 19, Peter and John answered said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They understood this is about the word. And they said, look, you can do whatever you want to with this, but we, this is about God's word and we're not gonna change it like we talked about this morning. We're not gonna alter it. We're gonna just preach what God wanted us to preach and we're gonna let the chips fall where they may. And so they wanted boldness. Now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word, by stretching forth thine hand to heal, that signs and wonders may be done. Those are the signs and wonders that got them in trouble in the first place. That by signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. So they understood that what they needed was not protection for persecution, but boldness to endure persecution. And that's a significant difference in our prayers. Over in Romans chapter one and verse number 16, there's some comments about boldness that I wanna just briefly run through. One, Romans one and 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let me ask you a difficult question. It may cut close to home, it cuts close to home for me. Have you ever been ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Have you ever thought that you were gonna maybe say something to somebody about Christ, but you chickened out? I have. Have you? I bet all of us have. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? Because it is the power 
of salvation. It's the power of salvation. You know, I think if we really believed that, there's no way we'd be ashamed of it. You know, if somebody here had the cure for cancer, for example, we've all got people that are suffering with that disease, some very terribly. If we had it, would anybody be ashamed about that? Would anybody hide that? Of course not. I mean, we would boldly stand up and say, I've got it, I've got it, everybody come get it. Because we understand what that means. And we've got the gospel of Christ, which could do something much more than curing somebody of a horrible disease. It can save their eternal soul. And yet, too many times, we put it in our back pocket. Ah, you know, I don't know, they may think funny of me. We need to have boldness. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse number 13 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse number 13. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like man, be strong. What he's basically saying is we need to be manly about this. And I'm sorry, women, be womenly about this too. You've got a backbone. We all need to have backbone. What he doesn't mean to say is be a male. What he's saying is be strong, have some backbone. And we need to have some backbone. If you wanna have backbone, yeah, it's hard to do by yourself. But when we have Christian fellowship and we're talking to one another and we're communicating and iron sharpening iron, we can have more of that backbone and it allows us to be more like men or be strong in the face of persecution. Ephesians chapter six and in verse number 10, Ephesians chapter six and in verse number 10, the Bible there says this, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We are constantly called to be strong. And he talks about then the whole armor of God. And we've, we've studied that before. In Acts chapter four and in verse number 13, where we started off this afternoon in our study, and in verse number 13, it says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Paul, Peter and John were bold. It, they were so bold, they saw their boldness. What does that mean? Well, they were sitting on the temple. I mean, they were sitting right on the lip of the temple preaching the gospel of Christ in the face of all the rulers of the, church, of the temple at that time. They were bold. You and I need to have some measure of that boldness. But you know, despite that, we're human, and sometimes we try and seek safety. We don't want to be bold. We just want to be protected. And in Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 28, the Bible says, And fear not them which kill the body, but are able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And we get that wrong all the time. You know, like I said, nobody's trying to kill us, but we're scared of the person who's going to make a joke about us. I mean, we, oh, I don't want to be, I don't want to, I don't want to offend the person who's going to make a joke about you. And what, Matt, what Jesus is saying is, don't be worried about somebody making a joke about you. Which is worse, somebody making a joke about you or falling into the hands of an angry God? Don't be worried about somebody doing something that doesn't own up to that or doesn't measure to that. A joke is nothing. Losing your soul in eternal hellfire, that's a completely different thing. And we need to understand that and pray for boldness and not safety. You know, as we close, God answered this prayer. And I think that's what is so neat about this story after they pray. In Acts chapter four, where we were, when they pray, uh, Acts chapter four and in verse number 32, and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart. I'm sorry, I'm in a different, Acts chapter four, this is before this. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul, and uh, neither said any of them the odd of the things which they possessed with his own. This is right after we just talked. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I messed up where I was. This is right after the prayer that was just given. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that odd of the things which he possessed were his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the, brought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and 
distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who was by the apostles, was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation of Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So after they do this prayer, the Bible says, they began to speak boldly. They began to do more miracles, and they began to, what, grow as a church and get a lot closer. They began to have all things common. They began to sell things and give it to the, so that everybody had what they had need of. They grew as a church. God answered their prayer. In Acts 9 and verse number 29, Acts chapter 9 and verse number 29, later on in the book of Acts, it says there, and he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. Talking there about, uh, uh, about the boldness of the apostles at this time. They were given boldness, and we can read about it again and again in the New Testament scriptures. In Acts chapter 14, verse number three, it says, Long time therefore abode they speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony to the word of his grace and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Exactly the prayer that they prayed that they would have for the church was what they were given. And then in Acts chapter 19 and in verse number eight, Acts chapter 19 and verse number eight, it says that he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom. Talking about Paul and his speaking there. You know, I think it's, it's, it's encouraging to me to watch a church pray for boldness and to be immediately strengthened. It is encouraging to me to see apostles that were put into prison and that knew that their very liberty or maybe their lives were at stake. And we can read time and time and time again in the book of Acts where they are speaking boldly, where they're back in the synagogue of all places, preaching and performing miracles again and disputing with people about the gospel of Christ. They didn't seek safety. They ran to persecution. Why? Because they wanted to fight for God and for his gospel. Folks, I guess what I wanna leave you with this afternoon is run, embrace persecution and run to it. The problem is not persecution. The problem is how we respond to it. Don't worry about whether you're gonna be persecuted, rejoice. It's a good sign if you're being persecuted. Pray for boldness. Pray that you'll understand that it's about Christ, not about you and take advantage of the immense strength you have in this congregation and your other congregations around you in the brotherhood of Christ and withstand persecution. Folks, I hope the lesson has been beneficial to you. I really have enjoyed again this opportunity. We have one last gospel call, one last invitation song. We've talked a lot this week about a lot of things pertaining to Christianity and about becoming a Christian. We've talked about the reality of hell. We've talked about Christ as our advocate. We've talked about our relationship with Christ, with God, like a father and a son relationship. We've talked about how he's both our just, our justifier, and he's also just. And we've talked about our responsibility to be bold and to preach his word. Folks, those things are important because at the end, with the heart of all of that is the gospel of Christ. It's important that you obey it, and it's important that we preach it. And we need to do it ceaselessly as we are in this earth. It's our mission. It's our one mission in this life. If you're here and you have not yet named the name of Christ, don't leave here without it. Don't leave here without it. It will, it will destroy your soul in hellfire if you die in that condition. Don't risk another second without Christ. If you're here and you can, are willing to take those steps, those steps include believing that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, being willing to repent of the sins that you have committed, being willing to confess his name before man and being willing to be baptized for the remission of sins, you can be added to God's kingdom. We'd love to help you do that this afternoon. Or maybe you hear you need the prayers of the church. Maybe you need more boldness. 
Maybe you need to spend more time with the body of Christ. Maybe you need to make it more not about you and more about Christ and you need help doing that or you just need help for any other thing. If you need the prayers of the church, we'd love to pray for you. If there's one of either case, won't you please come forward while we stand and sing the song of invitation.